Hello, I'm Elena Dalval, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is John Dunn, who is author of Drying Up. We will discuss the freshwater crisis in Florida. A native Miamian, John has written more than 400 articles for periodicals such as Europe Overseas Life, Sierra, Florida Trend, Business Florida, and the St. Petersburg Times. He has authored 16 nonfiction young adult books and edited a Civil War series for young readers. In February 2019, Drying Up, The Fresh Water Crisis in Florida, was selected as winner of the Florida Historical Society's Stetson Kennedy Award for writing about Florida's natural environment. The book also won the bronze medal in the 2019 Florida Book Awards, Florida Nonfiction Category. John is also a retired veteran high school teacher of history, law studies, sociology, and philosophy. He taught in Georgia, Florida, North Carolina, and Germany. He has worked with various water conservation groups in Florida. A father and a grandfather, he lives with his wife in Ocala, Florida. John, welcome. Oh, good morning, Elena. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak today. This is such a puzzling topic. I, it's been twirling around in my head since I read the book back when it was released. The first question that comes to mind is, for people who live in Florida, it seems that we have too much water. When the rainy season arrives, they're dumping water all over, certainly in the central and southern parts of the state, to get out into the ocean. And they're having to lower the level of the canals. How is it that we seemingly have so much water but we are having water issues. Can you help us understand? Well, yes, uh, that is a great question because it seems like a, a contradiction of the title of my book. Uh, in a general sense, I'm going to put it this way. The United Nations acknowledges that we have these looming water shortages around the world. And scientists say there ought to be enough fresh water for everybody on the planet. But because of pollution and waste and mismanagement, the water is not being used efficiently. And so a lot of the water that those observers mention, that the scientists say it's going to sea, um, it's, very often it's storm water, which is rainwater. It hits the ground and goes into a canal and, goes flow, and picks up pollution along the way and goes out to our coast and the estuaries. Um, in the last few years, many communities, I'll, we'll get to this later when we start to talk about some of the solutions, but they are now starting to realize they should be trapping a lot of that water that's going to sea and impounding it in reservoirs and setting up natural uh, cleansing infrastructure projects to use it for uh, future water supplies. I went uh, to prepare for this book. I interviewed over 100 people across the state, including lots of scientists, and I went to many conferences. And um, I talked to a, a mayor of one town on the uh, eastern coast of Florida, and he said that one day – well, he said, first of all, he said because of population growth, his community is expecting more and more people, and they, and they were worried about how to supply enough water 
drinking water and other water needs um, in the future. And he said that he was pondering this as he was standing on a canal and watching fresh water go out to sea. And he said, well, this is stupid. We're, we have fresh water going to sea, and I'm wondering how I'm going to get new water supplies. Maybe we should be using this, being better stewards of the water that is hitting Florida. Um, and in a few minutes, I'll show some graphs to support what I just said. Um, or I can do that now. Do you think I should go ahead? If we could just go back to the causes for a second. So okay. we were talking about the the United uh, – I'm sorry, who did you say was the source? The United Nations uh, um, statement about water supply worldwide. So you said the causes that we're having water shortages are pollution, waste, and mismanagement. Are those the causes specifically affecting Florida's water supply? No, not specifically. That's in a general term. Uh, well, we have water. What I've learned is we have water quantity problems and water quality problems. And water quality problems affect the water quantity problems. So if we, we have a pollution problem, water pollution problem, when you pollute water and it can't be used for drinking purposes, it's the same as if that water was evacuated. It can't be used. Or if you do want to use it, you have to spend a lot of money cleaning it up. And very often the water treatment plants that clean our dirty water need electricity to operate. And to produce electricity, you need water because electricity requires water to be turned into steam to turn turbines and then to produce electricity and also water to cool the towers at the power plants. So there's a nexus between water and electricity anyway. And then the irony is if you're trying to clean up water that you've polluted by some economic activity, uh, you are wasting a lot of water in this crazy cycle of dependence between electricity and water and pollution cleanup. If you want to address the the UN issue, was that where you were headed? No, um, in Florida we have pollute. Okay, I'll talk about water quality first. Okay, uh, I think I'll use my slide because that'll illustrate what I'm saying. All right, so um, I'm going to put this up because I have written about water for a while and. Back in 1997, I got an assignment to write for the international um, Rotarian magazine that goes out worldwide. And in those in that year, 1997, uh, water shortages were being noticed around the planet. And so 80 countries faced water shortages then. It's only gotten worse since then. Uh, as you were mentioning earlier, Florida receives, look at that, 55 trillion gallons of rain a year. And we only use one trillion, but we appear to be running out of water. So why is that? Well, uh, it's the same problem that I mentioned earlier, that we are wasting water and not managing it. It's being polluted. And in some places on the planet, it's even worse. Water use since 1997 has grown at more than two times the rate of the population increase the last century. The United Nations, again, estimates that two billion people lack access to safe drinking water. And by 2025, two-thirds of the world's population will live in water-stressed regions. And if you look at it, we're one of them. This is a um, satellite imagery map put together by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and it shows 
36 major aquifers in the world. And just for your readers, an aquifer is an underground water storage area, a natural one. Any color this way is a problem. That shows that the water is being extracted from the ground at a faster rate than nature can recharge it. And if you look, we live in that area. We are one of the tipping points, one of the problematic areas. Another way to look at it is this map. This is used by a lot of uh, people who are interested in Florida water issues. Uh, this, the information to put this together comes from the five water management districts in the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. And it's a couple, this is probably two or three years old, so it's, things have only gotten worse since then. But if you look, uh, this area, Central Florida and South Florida, are considered not enough drinking water for current population due to overpumping, saltwater intrusion, and other development. Um, a study came, that came out three years ago that I used a lot, and when this study came out, it was a big deal because the media used it for weeks and weeks at a time, and it's one of the most um, impressive and important studies about Florida's water supply and the increasing population of humans in Florida. It was put together by the Thousand Friends of Florida in conjunction with the Department of Agriculture and the University of Florida. It said if current trends continued, and I thought COVID might throw it off, but it doesn't seem to. Uh, COVID seems to be uh, keeping the arrival of newcomers at a steady rate. Anyway, uh, if the current trends continue, Florida's population could increase 75% by 2070. Now, to give some perspective to this, I was born in 1949 in uh, Coral Gables. There were but 2 million people in Florida. Today, we have 22 million people in Florida. We can expect another 15 million people to show up, which is a, and they're thirsty and they want to take showers and wash their cars and so forth. So there will be a 53.7% increase in water. And what this study doesn't address is that before COVID came to town, we were getting up to 126 million tourists every year. This is about double what it was the decade before. All those people that come to our hotels and motels want to swim in pools, take long showers, and drink water, and do everything else that water um, consumption requires. Um, members of our political and business class or leadership are always advocating more and more growth, more and more tourism. But when you ask them where is the water going to come from, they don't seem to have a ready answer very often. In 2013, the uh, U.S. General Accounting Office, Florida Water Management the managers, all re sorry, many of them say they expect to see regional water shortages by 2023. I think it's almost every county. In central Florida, the Orlando area, there is um, a consortium of private and government entities that are put together. It's called the Central Florida Water Initiative. In their master plan that came out a couple of years ago, they concluded that traditional groundwater resources alone cannot meet future water demands. Some areas have already exceeded sustainable limits. If you're new to Florida, you might not realize that we get most of our drinking water, unlike other states, we get it from the ground, not from the rivers. And in 2010, according to an independent analysis by the Atlantic Magazine, the Orlando area is ranked 10th among American cities running out of water.
And the problem is growth. We receive a net growth of about a thousand people every day. We have actually more people arriving every day, but there are people also leaving the state. So the net is about a thousand. If you do the math, that means every year we have enough people to build another city the size of Orlando. Here's a NASA view of what Florida looks like at night. And uh, Elaine and I were talking before the, the, the podcast began about new developments in Florida. A lot of these dark spots are on somebody's planning book. Um, with their people planning to put developments all over the state. Well, how do we know we're getting water shortages? Well, some of the signs are already here. Um, I live in Ocala, and I'm about five miles away from the fabled um, Silver Springs, which was Florida's first tourist attraction a century ago. And it was the first magnitude spring. Hollywood used it for underwater scenes. Nobody makes pictures under uh, in Silver Springs anymore because it's darkened by algae. The fish population has been uh, declined by over 90%. And the pumping power for it and 40% of the 1,000 springs that are up here on average have declined since the 30s by 32%. Silver Springs is no longer a first magnitude spring. It's pumping power. That means the volume of water that bubbles up every hour has and some, much of the year is up to 30 or 40 percent. Here is a picture of White Springs on the Suwannee River in 1914. This is a, a, people came from all over the world to enjoy this spring. This is what it looked like in 2005. A phosphate mining company had just used up the groundwater and used it up. And we have other problems with our water quality issues. A lot of people who come to Florida are surprised to hear this, but we have uh, dangerous – our water – fresh water bodies are um, rich with bacteria. They have nutrients, which sounds good, but when you have too much nitrogen, too much phosphorus, it causes uh, algae blooms and red tide to explode. You don't have to go to Cleveland, Ohio to – the industrial chemicals in the water. We've got them too. Arsenic, cyanide, mercury, nickel, lead, cadmium, chromium, and so forth. And because of all this, Florida has 1,700 impaired water bodies. What is that, John? An impaired water? Um, what impaired water body means it's polluted, and it needs uh, addressing by the Department of Environmental Protection. So it's not good to be impaired. That means it's a sick river or lake or stream. And what's the source of that? The source of this, of Department of Environmental Protection records, Florida Department of Environmental Protection. And in my book, the footnote would tell you where that is. Um, many people, particularly new to Florida, are surprised to see this. Every day, Floridians use more than 50% of the public supply of water to, to water their lawns. Now, I have to make sure people understand what public supply means. This doesn't mean all the fresh water in Florida. It means the portion of the total amount of fresh water for the state that we get for water our lawns and take baths and drink and fill our swimming pools. But we use 50% of that fresh water supply on St. Augustine grass. Nationwide, it's like 40%. Would you help us understand that people are paying when they pay for their water bill for the water 
Is that correct? What I learned is, I'm not sure this is what you're asking me, but I think it might be. We don't really pay the true value of the water itself. What we're paying for their water bills is the storage of the water by the utility and the maintenance of that utility and the transportation of that water to our homes. Many people who have a private well and live out in the county away from a municipal area don't pay for the water at all. Um, there's a big controversy in North Florida about the Nestle company um, keeps coming back for more permits to bottle water to set, sell around the world. Um, and all they have to do is pay like $115 for a water permit, and then they pump out all the water the permit allows, and they don't pay for the actual water itself. And also, the rest of us don't either. We're paying for the things I just described. In fact, one of the solutions that people around the country have come up with is to make is to require that everybody start paying for water, the, the true value of it, um, like the same way we would with gasoline or electricity. But right now, um, we're not, and that might be one of the solutions that can be adopted. Help us understand, or help me understand. What we have here in Florida as a source of water is an underground source of water. And if it's in your land, then you own it. And if it's somewhere else, then your source of water comes through the tap that's provided via a utility company. Is that right? Yes, it's right, except there's a court decision that says um, you have a right to bring – well, if you get a permit – and, and the permits are given out like library cards. I, I once asked a, a member of the St. John's Water Management District who had worked there 30 years, how often did they say no to a water permit request? And he, this was at a public meeting, and he said, we never have uh, turned anybody down. We always say yes. So it's not that hard to get a water permit. Um, I'm sorry, what was the rest of the question? It's a little confusing in the sense that, for example, I have heard of people who own land, so they have their own well. Oh, yeah, the right to water. So if it's pumped, once you're pumping the water, it's yours. But a court decision to call the Tequesta decision that came out several decades ago said that, well, once – like if you, you pump the water and you put it into a bucket, I'm, just as for an example, that's your water. But if you spill it – and it goes back into the ground, it's not yours anymore. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but that's one of the premises of water law in Florida. If someone in the property adjacent to yours digs a well and extracts the water from their land, but that water is connected to the water in your land, then they can take out the water in both their land and yours, because until they extract it, it doesn't belong to anyone. Is that how it works? Well, first of all, water in Florida is a state asset. Um, we've had some counties that wanted to uh, impound their water, and they say we shouldn't share it. But that's not going to work because the courts and the state law have already said that water that's coming 
from one municipality to another on the St. John's River or the Everglades or something. It's it, it's always evaporating. It's always seeping into the ground. It's always being extracted, and you really just can't grab it, say that's mine, and dam it up. You can out west. Uh, western water law is different from eastern water law. So the the water one of the, the problems I've been told by uh, engineers in, uh, up in the area I live, um, I think I quoted this engineer from Marion County in my book. She said one of the problems was that up here, all the counties, of course, share the Floridan aquifer underground. And if Marion County, for example, says, well, we don't really want to pump up a lot of the water and use it for projects right now. We want to do this in a conservative fashion and, and have slow growth in the next couple of years and, and, and show good um, husbandry of our water supply. However, she said, if the surrounding areas are gung-ho in development and they're sinking wells and getting permits and sucking up the water out of the aquifer, it does affect your ability to extract the water. But at the same time, it's really not your water. You just have a right to extract the water from – if you get if you own property, you have a right to request a water permit to extract it. So we had an issue up here in the Ocala area um, where a, there was a project for a huge um, grass-fed cattle operation, and if the original permit when it was submitted – would have allowed the owner of this property to have um, the right to extract water that exceeded the total municipal supply for the Ocala city limits by two or three fold for his cattle operations. He was allowed it. He would be allowed when necessary to extract that much. Now there was a big battle that came afterwards and the water management districts restricted how much he was allowed, but that, his extraction did affect the Ocala area, but he had a right under the law to extract it because he got his permit. And so I know it sounds crazy, and many of the activists and critics say that's one thing we need to address in Tallahassee in our water code is to uh, make people pay more for water. Make, uh, in fact, some of the water scientists I've talked to you think we should have a moratorium on water permits that too much is being allowed to be extracted. But it's not just that, Elena. This slide here shows it's we're wasting water because we also have a fresh water infrastructure problem. We have pipes in Florida that sometimes are 75 to 80, 90 years old. And every year the American Society of Engineers comes up with an infrastructure report card and the last five, ten years, Florida gets a D minus to a C minus because our growth is so great that these pipes can't keep up with the new demands on the water pipes. At the same time, and I can talk about this a little bit later, sea level rise is also putting pressure on these pipes. So anyway, we are, I think up to 40% of the water that's wasted in the United States often is because of leakage in the infrastructure, the pipes. People don't want to pay more taxes, but you've got to pay to have a civilized society. And if we want to have good, clean water in a modern um, infrastructure, it's going to require money. And there's been estimates that up to $17 billion or more is needed to 
um, upgrade our freshwater infrastructure, and our wastewater infrastructure is really bad too. Let's go back to the the basic concept that you mentioned earlier, that we have an issue with water quantity and water quality. Right. Why, I mean, you've brought attention to this in your book, but it's never, as far as I can see in the media, Nobody talks about it. The lawns are green, and they're green by requirement. By the way, I know some neighborhoods will fine residents if their lawns are not perfectly maintained. They will actually issue citations that that have a fee attached to them. There is no evidence that anyone is aware of or concerned about water shortage. How is this possible? Well, I think it comes and goes. It was an issue a couple of years ago, and I guess there's a um, a frenzy of interest when certain um, reports come out or certain disasters take place, or a, a, like Fort Lauderdale continues to have um, wastewater problems. Their pipes are exploding with all kinds of sewage that's getting into the, the ground and the water supply in the, in the bay and so forth. Um, but I think people have been writing about this. Um, a friend of mine named Cynthia Barnett, and we know each other because she was a staffer at Florida Trend Magazine. I was a freelancer there for 20-something years. She came out with a, a book of her own on this about 12 years ago called Mirage. And when Cynthia's book came out, she was invited to speak to the state legislators. might even be 15 years ago now, 12 to 15 years ago. Um, and uh, she, and she got some of the. I got third place, she, but her book got a first. Got her a first place, and in she identified all these problems that I mentioned. In fact, in my book, I mentioned that she came before me, and there was a flurry of interest for about a year or so. And I was in the public library the other day, and, and at the time, the library when when she was hot. They, our public library bought five or six volumes, and uh, on the shelf the other day, I think all of them were there. So my book's the latest attempt, maybe, to uh, identify this. Craig Pittman, who is, I think, one of the best environmental journalists in the state, he's used to write for the Tampa Times, um, he had a daily column on this, and uh, he was on the issue all the time. I guess it's an inconvenient idea for a lot of people. It's until it's your okay. In my book, I start off talking about uh, the people in Cedar Key, Florida, which is uh, really a fishing village, one of the last in Florida on the Gulf Coast. And several years ago, people turned on their water, and it was salty. Their salt water intrusion had taken over the water supply, and until that day happened. And it was them. They didn't take the issue seriously. But it was the problems were too many people uh, demanding water, sea level rise, pollution, and all these things combined. And they had a real water crisis. In fact, they still do. And they they had to redo their infrastructure, redo their their water plant, look for new wells that were further inland. So the leaders of the community, especially in South Florida, they're aware of this. But at the same time, they're encouraging more growth and more growth and more growth. 
So I think that's part of the. I mean, I share your your your. I don't know disbelief, but but shock at this. Um, in one sense, there's this obvious problem that people take a look at and shrug. I, it, this might help a little bit. Florida continues to be a go-to place. We're the third most populated state in the country. And sociologists talk about a phenomena called the shifting norm. A lot of people come today will look at Silver Springs that I was just talking about and say, gosh, it looks pretty to me. This is fine. This is a lot better than the, the polluted, nasty river I left up in New Jersey. And so to them, that's the new normal. This is good. For people who saw Silver Springs 30 or 40 years ago, when it was as transparent as um, glass and fish were everywhere and Tarzan movies were being filmed because of the incredible underwater clarity, that was what was normal for them. So there's this slow descent into uh, more pollution, less drinkable water, and we keep having so more, so many new people. In fact, I, I mentioned that one reason I wrote the book was to provide a primer um, for people new to the state. When I was doing my research, I came across a, a statistic. Should I go back to this? Maybe I'll do this for now. Um, can you see me now? Yes. Okay. So um, the New York Times had done a study, and the part I want to mention is that Florida was the number one state for having the highest percentage of people who lived in the state that weren't born in the state. And that it was something like 65% of the people. Now, this is not a, a complaint about migration or immigration, but it's still true that if the majority of people weren't born here, they probably don't have a deep understanding of the history of the, of the state at all, and they probably have very little idea about the water or environmental history of the state. This would include a lot of the policymakers and leaders. One of our recent governors had only lived in the state for seven years, and I guess you can learn a lot, but I think that's very different from somebody who's been here for decades and decades and really understands what goes on in the Panhandle and the Keys and Miami-Dade and Jacksonville and Orlando and sees the whole big picture of what's going on. So I think a lot of those are, are or, or problems. You know, you don't have to, in the public schools in Florida, you don't have to uh, ever study anything about Florida's environmental uh, problems or issues. I think only in sixth or seventh grade are you required just to learn a little bit about Florida history. So for the most part, I think most people in the state don't really know much about Florida at all, and they don't understand the water issues in so, um, and I guess I hope that my book will help draw attention to this. I got this assignment because the University Press of Florida uh, asked me to, if I'd be interested in writing a book on it. They they saw water as an overlooked issue, like you're mentioning. And I had experience writing about water, and I had experience being involved in some water conservation crusades. And so I took it on, and I'm glad I did. So I was kind of long-winded, but I hope that answers your question. Yes. It's, so here's, a, here's I think, an, another big-picture question. All the issues that we've discussed, notwithstanding 
we can't change the school system or the infrastructure or the government or the leaders. What happens if the status quo that we're discussing continues unchanged so that other places like Cedar Key turn on the tap and water doesn't come out? Is this a harbinger of things to come, or is that an extreme situation that was just very poorly managed? What, what can we expect in the coming, I don't know, five or ten years? No, it's not an extreme. It's just um, it happened real fast. But uh, Fort Lauderdale and other communities over the last ten years or so have had to relocate many of their municipal wells inland to get away from the sea level rise. I think what, to answer your question, if it's just the business-as-usual approach, we will see water become um, a commodity. It already has. In fact, a couple of um, months ago, water for the first time was being traded on the stock market, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, as and people were betting against uh, the rise and fall of the price of water at the the different places on the market. So water, which many people would say is a sacred fluid, it's the substance of life, and we ought to uh, revere it, have turned it into something to buy and sell on the stock market. And I, based on what I hear, a lot of city planners and engineers, and this sounds good in one sense, they said, let's do more with reuse water. Reuse water means recycled water. I think Floridians should be prepared, honestly, to expect that their wastewater, that means their poop water, the water from their toilets, will go to water treatment centers, and it will be mixed with other water supplies, and you will be drinking what was formerly wastewater. It's already being done in Singapore. It's been, it's called new water, and it's bottled in in one sense, all water gets recycled all the time by nature, and uh, astronauts drink recycled water in their spacecraft. But in, 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 I've talked to, for my book. I talked to the people involved in the um, reuse water association, and the director told me, the executive director told me that they feel they can solve this problem at a water treatment plant. Their biggest problem, she said, is to get Americans and Floridians over the yuck factor of drinking recycled uh, wastewater. About two, well, three years ago in Tampa, the, the same association, the, I forget the exact name, but it's the uh, American Reuse Water Association, hosted an event in the Tampa area for beer makers, and they supplied them some repurposed wastewater and then the, the challenge was to go and make uh, a beer out of this water and come back for competition. And so that was done, and people came back with their beer, and their first place, second place, third place, and people drank the, the beer and ate hot dogs and had a good time. But the whole point was to try to show people that that wasn't so bad. But if you really start thinking about it, uh, water is um, – the, the substance of life. We, we're spending extraordinary amounts of money to send rocket ships to asteroids and moons of planets to see, oh my gosh, does Mars have any water? If water is there, that means there's life. 
And at the same time, we just uh, are wasting it here, polluting it here, and turning it into a saleable product. So there are people that are calling for a new water ethic, and it it can be. We, but one example that Cynthia Barnett used when she spoke to some college students at the University of Central Florida several years ago, she started her presentation with a um, excerpt from that TV show called Mad Men. And in this scene, the, the 1950s family is pictured um, in a park somewhere, and they're eating a, a picnic. And when it's all over, they throw their cans, their bottles, and their trash onto the lawn and get in their car and go away. And being a kid in the 50s, I remember that was the the, uh, the norm, the ethic. You just throw it out the window. Somebody else will have to worry about it. Or somehow maybe nature will gobble it up. You didn't know. You just threw it out the window. Well, that's not acceptable anymore. We've shifted that as a normal way of doing things to say, no, that's wrong. You get fined and people will yell at you if you do it too egregiously. So along those lines, people are saying, if we can start to educate younger people to look at water and our natural resources in a more reverential and protective way, where you might see changes. Um, yeah, it's hard to do anything politically, but one of my sources uh, for my book, um, a Florida senator told me when I, we were talking about education, she said, just all I need is some legislation written and give me ideas. She said, I can do it myself. I can present a, a bill that would require the teaching of Florida natural resources, and it's a required course in the public schools. Education right now is in disarray because of the pandemic, but one day it's going to calm down. But it does seem that the attack on the life-giving resources that, that we all depend on gets very little attention in the public schools. Not to fault the teachers, it's just there are other priorities. And um, I can say locally, when I've been involved with groups here that put on water forums and we bring in speakers from all over the state to talk about the threats to Silver Springs and so forth, when I, as a high school teacher, I would go to the science department and say to the science teachers, why don't you come out and have a look? Year after year, nobody would show up. None of the science teachers, for the most part. Maybe one out of 40 or 50 would show up. Nobody from the community college would show up. And yet, people with credentials on the highest level were explaining. I'm As a writer, I'm just gathering up what the experts have come up with and trying to put it in a language that might um, attract the, the the general reader, but yeah, trying to get the attention of people that are policymakers or the inf the influencers of the public is really tough. And I guess there's so many things competing for the public mind that you, it's just just difficult. What are other places that have water shortages doing? I mean, we are not the first, and we're certainly not in the worst position at the moment in terms of water shortages. There are other areas in the United States that have chronic water problems, areas that are desert or semi-desert. There okay. are cities, and for example, Cape Town comes to mind a couple of years ago that had severe drought issues where they were having to ration the water. What have all of those people been doing? Have, have you Is that something that you've looked at? 
Well, uh, there's a lot. Yeah, actually, um, they're, they're struggling. But in India, um, well, I think I got some literature here. Um, I'll just read this to you. In, in June 2018 uh, was day zero, the day that residents of Cape Town, South Africa, that's what you were just mentioning, um, that, that was the day that they ran out of water. So they had to bring in water from by trucks from other areas. They had to have water rationing. They had to look for new water supplies. And there's a whole suite of activities that people have to do. And I can, I'll be more specific in just a second. But in India, in 2017, 8.5 million uh, Bangalores were running out of water. Two years later, 21 more cities faced their own day zero. And there's also shortages in Jordan, Syria, Yemen, the Western Sahara, Australia, Brazil, Ganges, River Basin, Mexico, and even Great Britain and other parts of Europe are having problems. So it's, the United Nations consider, considers it a global problem. And if people are interested, they can go to see what's going on worldwide by going to the United Nations and see what their plans are. And if you wouldn't mind, I'll show you uh, with the slide some of the things that are going on. Of course. Um, so there are two ways of addressing this, two big ways of addressing the problem. The water engineers call it the hard path, which is what we're doing now, or the soft path. The hard path is the old approach to water management. Soft path is something new. Hard path is what the Corps of Engineers does. Engineers build things. They use concrete. They dig canals. They make dams and reservoirs. They move the earth around. And um, if, if there's a development in Palm Beach County and it needs water, well, they trench and put pipes out there. And then they put other pipes to take the wastewater away. And it's not working real well. It, 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 we certainly will have to stick with this, but the hard path says let's use the the builder's approach. Uh, let's look for new water supplies. Let's build desal plants like in Tampa to uh, have huge um, facilities that take brackish or salt water and convert it into fresh water. I meet a lot of people when I talk about this. They say, what's the problem, John? The, the Atlantic Ocean's out there, plenty of water, just take the salt out. That's what they do in Israel. It's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal because it's very expensive to, to try to get the salt out of water. Uh, it's energy intensive. A lot of carbon is put in, into play. And even Tampa, which until last year, was had could, could boast it had the biggest desal plant in the United States. Now there's a bigger one in California. They only use that to produce like one-third of their water needs. And with the growing population in Tampa, they're now starting to say, we're going to have to recycle a lot of the water, like I was talking about earlier. So an alternative to that, in California, where this idea started because of the um, severe water problems they have out there, it's called the soft path. In Florida, the, the uh, water managers and engineers and water experts that are advancing this idea are calling it low impact. And it is a brand new uh, approach. And, it's, and philosophically, it's different. So some of the key points real fast are to provide the water we need, not the water we want. And our goal ought to be to sustain ecological, sociological health, 
minimize, conserve, restore, and mimic natural hydrologic systems, and instead of concrete dams and so forth, use natural systems to contain and purify stormwater, and to try to recycle as much water as possible. On a small level, it calls for more conservation. My neighbors just got back from Japan, and they had a picture of this toilet. In Japan, you do what you have to do on the seat here, and when you wash your hands, that water goes in the reservoir, and now it's called gray water, and you use that already used dirty water to flush the toilet instead of fresh water. I think a lot of their showers work that way, too. We're starting to see in Florida on the low impact is um, instead of just a grate in the pavement where rainwater goes down and, and drains out to sea, we're starting to see, like here in Tampa, um, water gardens that are absorbing the water and purifying it and sending it to treatment centers. People, many Floridians, this can be done a lot more. Instead of using grass, they can use Florida native plants. Now, they're not always, it's not always the case that you don't have to water this, but the thing is, these plants that are native plants won't need as much water as a grassy lawn will. And it probably looks prettier. There's less maintenance. And every time somebody cranks up their lawnmower and burns that gasoline, they're adding to the carbon in the air, which causes global warming. Mimicking nature is another big deal with the soft path approach. And one of the best example in the world is in Orlando. I'll be real brief with this, but I'd recommend everybody go here if you can, but don't go on a hot day. Go now or it's still cool. But in Orlando several decades ago, the water treatment people had a problem. They, the, the nasty water from the residents of Orlando would go to a wastewater treatment plant, and then they would treat it, and they would then pipe it into the St. John's River. Well, the Department of Environmental Protection came along and said, you know what, that water still, despite your best efforts, it's still dirty. You're going to have to clean it even better. So what should they do? Build another hard path plant? Well, instead, they tried something which was kind of revolutionary. It was to build an artificial wetland park. Now, this looks like a Florida swamp, a natural one, but it used to be a farmer's field. All these trees were planted. All these uh, various plants here were put because of their ability to, as the engineers would say, give the water a final polish to absorb extra nutrients and chemicals and pollutants. And it works. People come from all over the world to look at what happened here. Wildlife has returned, and it is one of the best examples. In fact, since Orlando was so successful with this, we have had 60 or 70 uh, artificial wetland parks used, set up by municipalities and utilities around the state. Where I live in Ocala, we're kind of proud of this. We have our own uh, wetland recharge area, and it's on a much smaller scale, but our engineers figured out a way to take treated stormwater and treated wastewater and put it through this natural cleansing process using nature's infrastructure. And once it's clean, cleans, cleansed, sorry, the water then uh, seeps back into the ground and recharges the aquifer. Here in Orlando, this water to the right here is channeled out to the St. John's River. And if, it, if what I was told by the um, engineers in Orlando is true, and I suspect that it is, that the DEP said that actually this treated water done this way is cleaner than the St. John's River. 
Winter Haven, I guess I won't go into it right now, but Winter Haven is one of the best examples in Florida for the coming up with a natural infrastructure. Very briefly put, the, the engineers 15, 10, 15 years ago realized with the coming population boom that's yet to come, they weren't going to be able to provide enough fresh water. And just like you said earlier, Elena, fresh water was flowing out to the ocean. So they said, let's don't do that anymore. Let's store that storm water. Now, storm water is rainwater that hits the ground and courses through a farmer's field, picks up pollutants, oil, dog manure, and everything else. And for the most part, storm water in Florida is not treated. It goes to a storm water retention pond, and then eventually it's uh, evacuated to the coastline or an estuary or somewhere. So what they're doing here is they, they, they keep the storm water from flowing out into the ocean, and then they've moved the earth around, planted trees, even there's a different array of underground water passages to let nature clean the, cleanse this water. And then it becomes not only good for nature, but it also becomes something that agriculture can use and serves as a future water supply for the residents yet to come. Um, so anyway, this is a really good example. Down in the Everglades, there are attempts to fix damage done in the past. This is the Tamiami Trail. The Tamiami Trail was a, a, a road that was built in the 1920s to connect Miami with Naples. It went right through the Everglades. At the time, it was considered a, an engineering feat because it was such a hard thing to do and it was so dangerous. The trouble was this – originally, it was a two-lane road. It, it got people from Miami to Naples okay, but it also functioned as a dam to prevent all the fresh water flowing down to the Everglades, the southern part of the Everglades – and Florida Bay. So in recent years, um, hydrologists have said, we've got to, well, we're using hard engineering here, but they ripped up that ground level road and replaced it here and there with segments of bridge. People still get where, where they need to be, but now the water is allowed to flow down to South Florida. And this is something that I think your listeners or viewers would find interesting, Elena, because it's kind of new. This idea, it's called virtual water and water footprint, started in Great Britain about 15 years ago uh, by um, a geographer. And in the, I won't go into the whole history right now, but here's the, the starting points, the takeaways, which tie into all this new approach to solving our water problems. I think everybody listening understands what a carbon footprint is. Water footprint means the total amount of water that's required that goes into a project. And very often that means taking into consideration something called virtual water. And by the way, this is a really amazing book to read. So what do we mean by this? Well, virtual water means to consider all the water that was used maybe to make um, a new house in your neighborhood. There's three kinds of waters to an engineer. Blue water is water that's in a lake. Green water is water that's stored in the tree. And gray water is the water that's either polluted or used to clean up pollution. So when, you t when people talk about their water needs, they often just talk about blue water. But the comprehensive way is to consider all three. And when you do, you come up with things like this. Now, what I'm about to tell you was determined by water economists, I guess the best way to put it, or economists that are using uh, virtual water calculating systems that they have. 
So if I were to ask you how much water is required to make a cup of coffee, you would say, well, that's silly, a cup of water. No, a better answer would be 37 gallons of water because there was water that was required for agriculture to grow the coffee beans, to clean the beans, uh, electricity that was required in the processing and, and transportation, water that was required to make the cream that goes into it and the sugar. So anyway, uh, one estimate is for every cup of coffee, 37 gallons of water is needed. Or it, in Florida, there's a lot of controversy about the growing of sugar. And very often people are upset because so much pollution comes from our sugar farms and pollutes the water supply. And a lot of people um, are concerned about the political power that the sugar industry has. But a, a third, a new way to look at it is how much sugar cane should we really be growing? Because to produce two pounds of sugar cane requires 475 gallons of water. If we back up a little bit to uh, what happened in India with their water shortage, I understand a lot of the Indian farmers, because of those day zero events, now are reconsidering growing rice because they realize rice is so water intensive and they don't have that water that they might be better off switching to other crops. And so some of the rice farmers in India are being forced to switch crops. If this became part of policymaking, we might be much more careful about what crops we grow, not just in Florida, but everywhere, and where these crops should be grown. So a smartphone would require over 3,000 gallons to produce. And for a disposable diaper or a a cloth diaper, actually less water is required to make a, a disposable diaper, but because you can use this cloth diaper over and over, the water footprint of a cloth diaper is four gallons as compared to 144 gallons. And this is such a big deal anyway that countries around the world are now using virtual water to make import and export decisions. Okay, and I think I'll uh, pull the graph off for a, a while. Elena, I'd be glad to answer any other questions. Let's go back to, well, let me go back to something that you said a minute ago regarding Tampa and California's implementation of desalinization practice or an integration of desalinization into their water supply. I think you said that they're using about one-third of their supply is being sourced from desalinization. Is that right? Uh, in Tampa, I'm not sure about California, but Tampa, if that's correct. They also have a huge reservoir, and they have groundwater sources. Now, there is a side effect to desalinization. I don't know all the details, but the basic concept, as I understand it, is you take salt water, you take seawater, and you separate the salt out, and then you can use that for a fresh water supply. Is that right? Correct. Was so now you have this concentrated salt that you have taken from the salt water, and yeah. by itself it could be a problem. What do you do with that salt water? Uh, I'm sorry, what do you do with that salt that you took out of the salt right, water? Right, that is a problem. And I, if I remember correctly, I went out to that plant and I talked to the engineers um, in Tampa. I think they said they take that brine and have a process where they sort of decontaminate it and then um, dilute it and then we send it back out into Tampa Bay and they, I guess they think if it's diluted enough it won't uh, diluted enough it won't uh, be a major problem but I'm not sure if that's a long-term solution or not 
You also talked about a reservoir, and that when we started and you talked about the number of, like you said, it was 55 trillion gallons of water that we get in rain a year, the thought that occurs is, well, so why doesn't everybody just have a well in their backyard or something to that effect, or more reservoirs? Is is that something that anybody in, yes. I think you said Tampa oh. was doing, right? Well, Tampa's done it for a while, yes, and there are um, other ideas. Down in uh, South Florida, in the Miami area, there are a lot of abandoned uh, rock pits left over from mining operations, and they're big. I think even down to the Keys, there's some. So uh, some people are saying, well, the cavities are already there. It wouldn't be so hard to to uh, build reservoirs and store the water. So I think, I don't know how much movement there is, but I have read articles and I know that some engineers are aware of the proposals. There's also ideas, and we, we are doing it there. Okay, so first of all, the, but the problem with above ground reservoirs in Florida is uh, evaporation. Um, so much of the Florida is flat. So if you go out west, it's not so hard to, to dig a big hole in the earth and fill it with water. But in Florida, it gets a little bit trickier to find suitable soil and substrate that can hold a reservoir. Reservoirs are being used to control the flow, as you know, because you live near the Everglades in Lake Okeechobee. There are all kinds of uh, reservoir projects developing there to control the flow of water and the availability of water. So, um, but it is also true that Lots of evaporation takes place when we get so much sunlight. And I couldn't give you the exact statistics, but those are concerns. But that could be done. I don't know about letting everybody have an unmetered well. Um, uh, I think your listeners would probably be aware of the concept, the tragedy of the commons. It's an idea that if you have no governance and everybody goes out to a public forest and say, okay, the forest belongs to everybody. Just cut down what you need. That's not what's going to happen. Eventually, I mean, first of all, a lot of people are going to think, I need to get my my trees before the next person does. And then somebody who's got more chainsaws is going to cut more trees down than he really needs, so he can sell them. And and it's a tragedy because it was available to everybody, and everybody had a right to be there. But because everybody was there, they destroyed the place. So. In dealing with environmental issues and natural resource questions, that concept is often uh, brought up for discussion. How do we control the human appetite to get just his or her fair share? And I guess, that's that... why we, I guess that's why we have government to begin with, because we can't trust ourselves. Well, I guess what I had in mind was the rainwater, not necessarily oh. having giving people access directly <laughs> to the underwater aquifer, but if the water is raining, for people to have a reservoir or for communities oh, to have a reservoir. I, oh, yeah. Uh, people in the Bahamas have done that for a very long time. I went to the Bahamas in the 60s and stayed on um, an island, and every every house had um, rain barrels and cisterns, and that was your water supply. There was no other water other than the rainwater, and then you had to filter it and boil it to make sure it was suitable for drinking. So, yeah, the people in the Caribbean have long done that, and I, I think a lot of people in Florida are getting rain barrels and trying to trap rainwater in their backyard. Um, 
I I couldn't tell you where though. <laughs> I've read that somewhere in the United States there's local governments that frown on this though because they think somehow that if too many people are doing it, it affects the um, flow of water and makes it hard to make assumptions about how much water is available if it's not being monitored or metered some way. I, I, I sound kind of vague on some of these things, but I want you to know I, I asked an, an engineer uh, about this issue in a broader way, and this one gentleman who has a Ph.D. in hydrology said, um, yeah, we are um, pumping our aquifers dangerously low, and we need to do something radical to solve this problem. I spoke to another person, also with a Ph.D. in hydrology, who had worked at a water management district and was at this time at one of the major universities in Florida working with water issues. And she said, John, we don't know how much water is in the ground. It could be a lot more than what we think or it could be a lot less. So the way in the field people run, they, they, they make, uh, they have borings, they, they sink little wells and they take measurements and they have other ways of assessing the flow of water and they run computer modeling to make assumptions. And there have been huge arguments about what factors go into the computer modelings and whether the – I think a lot of people are, are making a, a comparison here that um, how, how bad is our COVID problem right now? Some people say, well, Florida looks pretty good and, and the political leadership's doing just fine balancing the economic and health concerns. And others say, oh, no, that's not happening. Uh, they're, they're, they're not revealing all the data and they're uh, using different vocabulary to hide the true infection rate. Well, in a same or similar way, the people of the water management districts get into disputes about um, how the computer programs that make assessments about water supply are set up. So that's a kind of a extrapolated answer to your question. But, yeah, people could probably not – people now here and there were saving some water – to water their garden, it probably would make a big difference. But if it's done on a big scale and it uh, upsets the water flow, uh, I guess in some communities that's considered um, a problem. So that's just food for thought, I suppose. Let's talk about the state a little bit in, in greater detail in terms of the areas that are consumers and the areas that are less consumers, for lack of a better term. So we have areas of the state that are booming. Uh, certainly the urban centers, the coastal areas, are growing almost at an uncontrolled pace. I don't know if there's anybody exerting any kind of control, as they used to do, I think they're still doing in the Keys, where they stopped issuing building permits because their infrastructure couldn't handle it. I don't know if there's anybody else doing that, but there certainly are areas that are consuming a lot of water, and then there are areas that are less populated, more in the central parts of the state and perhaps more to the north of Orlando, where there are fewer consumers and more water. I'll let you, if you would paint the picture. No, that, that's a very important point. Yeah, for a long time, the water was in the north of Florida and the people were in the central and the southern part. In fact, in the 1990s, 
a uh, pro-business group called the Committee of 100 or Council of 100 with some very influential people put out a report and they sent it to the governor and state legislatures, the legislators, um, calling for a huge infrastructure project which would pump fresh water from North Florida down to Central and South Florida. So that sounded good to them, but people in North Florida who incorrectly said this is our water and you can't have it, but because of state law, but still this everybody understands what they mean. They didn't want to see their community negatively impacted because of growth in Central and South Florida, which they had no control over. I went to one of the protest meetings just to see what was going on at Chiefland High School, and there were about a 1,000 people there that night. And there were actually county commissioners calling people to get their shotguns out and keep those water thieves from coming up from South and Central Florida to steal their water. And it was such there was such an outcry that eventually the idea was scrapped. Or was it? It did reappear about eight or nine years ago as a possible uh, component of a new water bill in the state legislature. But for the moment, they put it away. So... Uh, it, once it's, you know, the water belongs to everybody, but you get into the politics of water. Many people are saying, why should, well, for example, I mentioned earlier that Orlando has uh, passed the tipping point and they need water, but they don't seem to want to control their growth. They want to, uh, and, and they're good, going along this path really fast to tap the St. John's River. This time, not get the water from the ground, but also get it from a surface body, the St. John's River, which is considered one of the most scenic rivers in, in the United States. So the, this raises a lot of problems because many communities share the St. John's River. People in Jacksonville don't want to see a lowering of the St. John's River to meet the thirst requirements of the people in Orlando. They say this is a water body that goes through lots of communities, why don't you people down there start conserving water or have some incentives for uh, controlling your demand for water? So those problems haven't been resolved. If you look at Florida's water laws, and they're accessible online, it's not that hard to find them, but when you read through the verbiage, it, the two things will strike you, that the people that sit on the five water management governing boards their responsibility is to provide somebody seeking a permission for a water extraction permit as long as it serves the public good. Now, at the same time, there's other language that requires these bodies to protect the natural environment. So somehow they're supposed to protect the needs of other life forms of nature and let humans get the water they need that serve a public purpose. But that's where it gets controversial. What is a public purpose? Um, if Nestle's pumps fresh water out of Ginny Springs and puts them in plastic bottles and sells them in Connecticut and only pays $115 for the permit, how is that good for the public? Well, Nestle's will say, well, we're creating some jobs, and that's good, so that's in your benefit. 
of course, the people in the community say that those are just a few jobs and the economic impact isn't sufficient to um, offset the, the damage to our the natural resources. So you get into those kinds of – and a lot of the drama and trauma over these issues, it takes place in Florida's five water management districts. If anybody really wants to get into the game and find out how to be involved in learning to make good decisions about this water supply, you have to know what goes on in those five water management districts and how they're set up. There's, Florida is unique in the United States because we don't have a central water czar. We have five different water kingdoms, actually. And so questions about who gets the water, how much goes to nature, and all this takes place in the halls of these water management districts. I guess where you live is the South Florida Water Management District, which has been one of the most controversial ones in the last couple of decades. A lot of politics, right? Oh, a lot of politics, yeah. What is the timeline for all of this? It's earlier I was asking about what we might expect in the next five to ten years, and you were saying, well, get ready for some wastewater mixed with other water, and uh, you showed us a map in which the state of Florida water, or the state of water in the state of Florida for the next decade is increasingly stressed, therefore, the title water crisis for our conversation today. Are, are we sure about that data? What What is the source of that? Uh, tell us a little bit more, if you would. Um, okay, well, a lot, a lot of that information came from that 2017 report and other studies that I cite in the book done by the University of Florida and Friends of Florida. I'm a thousand friends of Florida. But I, I wanted, if I could, just answer it at an angle. Um, there are two other big factors at work that make it hard to make any kind of assessment. If, and it's, first of all, it's sea level rise. I think people in South Florida understand a lot more than people where I live with understand the danger of sea level rise. Miami-Dade County has approved the creating of the biggest mall and entertainment in North America, $4.5 billion project on the edge of the Everglades. It's, it's fantastic. It will even have artificial snow, a big glass dome, so people can go, and after they buy some shoes and, and eat a pizza, they can go snow skiing under a glass dome. This in a subtropical climate that's facing inundation of the Everglades, water by the end of the century from the sea that could possibly make Miami an island or different parts of the state. One thing I, want, I also want your listeners to understand about sea level rise that came as revelation to me. I think everybody in our imagination can see that encroachment from along the coastlines is a threat. But we also have salt water underneath us. Wherever your listeners are sitting in Florida, you go down 100 feet or so, there's a layer of fresh water. And then there is uh, brackish water underneath. And then there's salt water, which is part of the ocean. So we have water pushing up underneath. And as that water pushes from underneath, 
is causing the fresh water ground level to rise. So that pressure from underneath is increasing at the same time we keep pumping more and more water out of the ground, which is releasing the offsetting pressure. So as a result, we have fresh water rising, and especially it's a problem in South Florida because that water is, especially on the coast, is pushing up contaminants. They're called legacy contaminants left over from previous decades. And also getting into drain fields for septic tanks, which is contaminating the fresh water supply. So you have not only the salt from the coastlines contaminating the fresh water, it's also coming from underneath doing what I just described. So how to figure out when all that kind of action is going to make fresh water uh, disappear at a certain time is really tough. And the, the, all these bad things that I've said are things that I learned. But I want to just take one last force I want to mention. And I didn't realize this until it was pointed out to me. Several of the scientists that I spoke to said, okay, John, all those things we talked to you about, water quality and water quantity problems and pollution and, and et cetera, those aren't the biggest problems. And I said, they're not. No, 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 no. Sea level rise included. The biggest problem, they said, is the constant destruction of our hydrological system, our natural hydrology, which they mean is this. When a developer comes in to your area and takes and destroys a thousand trees, for example, a forest of a thousand acres, I mean, let's do a thousand acres. It's not just the case that animal habitat's been destroyed or, or, or that a beautiful place is gone. It's also this. Those trees store water. Those, just like we all learned in fourth or fifth grade about the water cycle, when it rains, the, the the rain seeps into the ground. The roots of the trees hold the soil in place so there's not a lot of erosion. The tree absorbs the water and then it transpires back into the sky. Uh, water that's on the ground evaporates and some of the rest of the water seeps in the ground and recharges the water, uh, the aquifer. And you have this water cycle that causes rain and replenishment of, uh, of uh, hydrates the, the natural world. Well, when we keep destroying the natural world, we are upsetting the natural hydrology. So water that used to seep down into the forest in this hypothetical situation I gave you, once it's been cleared and replaced with asphalt and concrete, now the water hits those impervious areas and drains off into a water storage area, stormwater drainage area, polluted, and then dumped into the ocean. And it might evaporate there. So you have water ending up in new places it was never meant to be, and you have water disappearing from places where it should stay. So that soft water approach that I mentioned earlier is very aware of this um, phenomena, and they try to encourage county commissioners and so forth to not just be tree huggers, but it's hard to convince people that there is a natural water cycle system and we keep destroying it. And in Florida, if that one projection about growth is correct, and this is meant to, the next thing I'm going to say is meant to be taken literally, by within 15 or 20 years, one-third of Florida could literally be paved over. <clears throat> say that again? One-third one of Florida could, let me get the graphs of 
I could show that to you. So look, 67, I have the sources for all these claims in my book, but they come from the United Nations and um, sources like that. So in the name of progress, 67% of the Earth's forests and wetlands are gone. Here in Florida, 50% of our wetlands are already gone. And by 2060, according to the report that I mentioned, the 2017 report, which I used because it was the best one so far, uh, one-third of Florida could be paved over. So it's this kind of destruction. This is Palm Beach, by the way. I think it's Brigger Forest. And so well, this beautiful forest, this is the story of Florida. It, now the, I'm sure of Publix and the Tire Center and uh, a Jew, I don't know. I shouldn't get mentioned names of companies, but we'll see all kinds of, of urban development here. And with concrete and asphalt and cars and oil slicks and everything else. It, it's not too hard to figure out that this affects the water supply and the water cycle. And so that disruption in uh, some a scientist I talked to in the southwest area of the state said, John, he said, it's because of climate change and all these other things. He said, I can't tell you uh, what I can't predict things like I used to. So I finally answered your question, Lena. He said in the past, he's my age in the 60s or 70s, I guess, and he said during his career, his job was to collect scientific data and then prevent it to, uh, present it to the policymakers in Tallahassee and give them what he considered good, clean scientific data so they could make good policy decisions about how to steward Florida's natural resources. But he said, I don't know what the future is because there is so much uncertainty <clears throat> Not sorry, not uncertainty that climate change is happening, not uncertainty that damage is being done, but uncertainty about how these forces are disrupting the natural world, which affect the the supply of water and air and habitat and all the other resources. So it's it's hard to say when these terrible things are finally going to manifest themselves enough that people will pay attention. It seems to me that. There's a, a, a denial. The whole, we all know about climate change denial. I think there's a growth denial underway in Florida as, as well. I, when I go to conferences, I often hear uh, presenters from the, the business community say, well, we've got to uh, keep the economy going, but we're just going to bring it. We're going to have a good economy. Good, We'll be compatible with nature, and we're going to protect the environment and also create good jobs. Well, I don't know if that's really possible. If you bulldoze a forest to create jobs, how does that protect the environment? These are questions. I don't have all the answers, but I think it's disturbing that so many of our elected officials aren't um, paying too much attention. Now and, now and then they do. And I guess right now COVID, to be fair, COVID and other problems uh, in, in the states, in all governments are having shortfalls in their revenue, so they can't provide the services and and so forth like they once could. I hope when we get back to normal that when we start rebuilding that concern for our water and our natural resources will be high among the priorities. I don't want to sound too cornwall, but I think we really do have a moral responsibility to the future of our children, grandchildren, other people's children, grandchildren, about what kind of world we hand off to them. And if we're just going to, we're going to lose something precious if we take clean water and dirty it 
and then send it to a factory to become a commodity and resold in a bottle. Uh, and this was the, the substance of life in the universe as far as we know. Then we've really lost something very important about being human beings and being alive in this universe. If we don't have a timeline per se, but rather estimates of varying kinds and affected by various things that are in flux, including, as you mentioned earlier, climate change, what areas would you say, you know, people are listening and saying, okay, well, how does this affect me? What does this mean in my life? What does this mean in my lifetime? If you are middle age and you're still working and you're a business owner or you employ people, if you have children, if you have grandchildren, everybody's sitting and listening and saying, well, what does that mean? And in a very real way, it means, for example, if you live in the Orlando area, that very soon you could be drinking partially processed wastewater. And it, if I understood correctly, Tampa is already doing some combination of that? Um, well, yeah, it's a, it's state of, that's a good way of putting it, state of flux in Tampa. I think they have an ongoing argument about taking um, their – they have treated wastewater, and they've been pumping it into Tampa Bay. But uh, for a while, people, if I can remember correctly, in the city government said, well, let's stop doing that. It's not really good for the Bay. Maybe it would be better to uh, pump it into the ground and let the earth purify it. Now, I don't mean raw, dirty water. It's already been treated at a waste uh, treatment center. But pump it down and allow it to be filtered and then rejoin the aquifer and and try to recharge it that way. But I guess – and I have friends who are environmentalists, and they, they get very upset. and go, oh, can you imagine that pumping poop uh, water into our water supply? Well, I, I said, I don't think it's really good to be pumping into the Tampa Bay either. You've got to do something with it. And um, I think what some of the solutions might be to – First of all, people have to become better educated. Now, I guess they're going to be educated until they realize that there's a problem. So um, that's one reason I wrote the book. But I think we could do a lot better with the governance of our water supply. I think everybody sh I think we should have a moratorium on new water permits. Everybody should have to pay um, for water. And so some communities have done this here and there. I uh, think Inverness and I think Tampa and a few other communities have a tiered water system. I don't know about where you live, but that means the utility will, company will say, um, okay, everybody pays a cheap rate for basic water consumption, but if you want to start having more and more water because you want to have a fountain in your yard or a huge swimming pool or a golf course or something, the more water you use per unit, you have to pay um, more per unit. It's a, a an incentive to use less water based into the pricing structure. That seems to work a lot around the country, but it also seems to be very unpopular. You know, we're so tax averse in the United States that uh, I think it's a real problem. We want solutions, but we don't want to pay for them. And I guess and if you don't want to pay for them, you don't want to hear about the problems. But I think Grown-ups need to look at these problems that we have, water and the others, and say, well, we need to do something about it. If it means we have to pay more, then we should do that or accept the fact we're going to live in a degraded world. 
but there's yeah, there's all kinds of solutions about you know uh, regulating your water intake and and changing your landscape and so forth. But the the, the biggest forces are on a scale that uh, individuals can't do by themselves. They have to band together with other people. So in that handout that I have for you, um, if anybody wanted it, what I can. It's an electronic handout. It's a version of the handout I used to give to people live uh, presentations when, before COVID hit. And in the handout, I tell you where you can go to get more information and, on these topics and the various organizations that already exist. You don't have to create a new neighborhood group and, and, and throw your quarters and dimes into a, a box to try to um, get something going. There, the, a lot of groups are already there waiting for interested people. To address these issues, you have to do it on the uh, big scale because often it involves lawsuits, going to court and having expert testimony from scientists and uh, attorneys who will fight for the, the various issues. Um, and also, the one thing an individual can do is elect people who do more than just say, well, yeah, we've got to protect the environment, people who really do have a commitment. When we pick a governor, you need to think about this. A governor decides a lot of things concerning water and other issues. On those five water management districts, I think it's ten. I forget the exact number, but the ten people that make the decisions don't have to know anything about water. They're usually realtors and developers and agricultural people. But anyway, each the governor handpicks those people who sit on the decision-making board of each of the water management districts. The governor also picks, handpicks the judges that sit on the sit in judgment when people argue about water management issues. The governor also picks. I think it's called the Environmental Resource Council. It's a, a committee. It's a, a group of about 10 people who advise the DEP. They come from all walks of life. And there's supposed to be a person at large and environmentalist in addition to people from other walks of life. But very often it's hard to find these days anybody from the environmental community that's ever put on any of these committees. So the governor has a lot of impact in the kinds of people that he or she appoints to these powerful positions. So uh, like all of our other problems, dealing with water in the end is a political problem because we have to learn how to share this resource equitably and um, in a way we can afford and so forth. And so a political resolution is necessary. Where can our listeners get more information on these things? You talked about a handout and uh, assuming the technology works and we're able to convert it to a compatible format, it should be on the article page where your podcast appears. And for those people who just have access to the audio file, they can come to our website, uh, to that page. Uh, and I also know that you have a website, right? 
Yes, and that information will be on my website, too. What's your website address? Oh, um, johndunnfreelancewriter.com. That's J-O-H-N-D-O, I'm sorry, D-U-N-N? Yeah, freelancewriter, all one word, dot com. And there, there will be the handout, and if we're able to make the technology work, we should also have either in the file itself with the audio, the uh, slides that you shared with us, and failing that, then we'll try to put that into the article page as a PDF that it should be easy to download. Sounds great. I appreciate that. I think you had offered, if anybody wanted to reach you by email, is your email address on the website? Yes, it's a Gmail account. I'll be glad to answer any questions in, in any way. May, may, may I end on a positive note? Of course. Okay, so there are two quick things. In this soft path approach that is gaining momentum, I mean, it's the it's new, green, enlightened way of doing things, and it, the, the advocates of it tend to be younger adults. But it seems to be the way of the future. Here, Florida Gulf Coast University's new water school. Um, this is a $90 million project. It's a new approach to training people to deal with our water Graduates of this will have a comprehensive view of water and water management. They study hydrology, they study philosophy, they study ethics, they study business. And the whole idea is that it's not just a commodity water. It's oh, everything. It's essential to life in so many ways. And the people who become in charge of allocating our water to nature and to, our, to humans will be better able to do so if they have a more philosophical and wide-ranging and comprehensive look. So I think this is really, really in, encouraging, that this, will, this is a, um, um, a sign of better t things to come. We have several water institutes at different universities in Florida, but this one's different. It's not just to uh, – a lot of the other institutes just are to showcase – research that various professors have. This is a whole new way of training people. And the other thing I wanted to end on was um, I was a part of a environmental battle or water battle here in Marion County, and I'll, I'll be really br brief about it, but there was going to be a, a project built near Silver Springs that would have been on the size of the villages, that huge retirement center that spreads across three counties in central Florida. Well, to make a long story short, about 15, 20 people got together. We got grant money, and we did a variety of things. But in the end, we got the support of the state government, our local county commission, and the Nature Conservancy to buy this land to preserve it as a natural recharge for Silver Springs. It, at the time of the purchase, it was the third largest purchase of real estate in Florida for conservation purposes. So we were really proud of that. We played a big role in it. So many times you lose in these battles, but sometimes you win. And um, 
that land is protected. So anyway, it, what was, it was so important because it was water recharge land that affected Silver Springs. It was bear habitat. There were Indian mounds on it. And among other things, our group wrote personal letters, friendly letters, not nasty and, and attacking anybody, to the board of director members who lived outside of the state for the most part, saying, you, why don't you sell this then? You don't have to develop it. Uh, do, do you really realize, maybe you don't realize what's at stake here and how important this particular land is? Well, when the board of directors met to vote on whether to develop this, um, our side won by one vote on the, because before that it was a done deal. And then by one vote, they decided to sell the land to the state of Florida and not develop it. And I don't think that would have happened unless concerned citizens um, got up and did something about it. But you got to know what you're talking about, and I hope my book will help others to do something similar. But you, you sometimes you do win, you shouldn't think you can't. So there's hope for the future. Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah. It's the best way to live, I guess. John, thank you for joining us from Ocala, Florida. Well, thanks for having me, Elaine. It's been a pleasure talking to you and being given the chance to share my views. I hope I didn't wander off the subject too much. Not at all. And to our audience, you have been listening to John Dunn, who is author of Drying Up, The Freshwater Crisis in Florida, who discussed the freshwater crisis in Florida. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.